Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. We've got a great show for you. We have Dr. Ellen Carlin, who's going to walk us through biodefense, talk to us a little bit about what biodefense is, and a little bit of schoolhouse rock here on how uh, legislation turns into a bill and what that means and how that affects all of us. We also have Carl Schmidt, who's going to talk to us a little bit about what it's like to do healthcare preparedness in a public health world and, and what we can do about it. What are some innovative things going on out there? Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you on the other side. So joining me now is Dr. Ellen Carlin. Ellen is a veterinarian by training. She's a senior health and policy specialist at EcoHealth Alliance and is also the co-director of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense and is on the adjunct faculty of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Ellen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me here, Jeff. Well, uh, why don't we start? Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the various projects that you're involved with and in particular the, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. It's really kind of at the center of a lot of the, these policy issues around disaster preparedness and particularly on the health and medical side. Great, thanks very much. Yes, I, I work on the Blue Ribbon Study panel through uh, EcoHealth Alliance, where I'm senior health and policy specialist. EcoHealth Alliance is a, is a nonprofit geared toward understanding the dynamics that the, the wildlife and livestock and human and environmental interfaces. We do a lot of research here with respect to emerging infectious diseases and zoonotic diseases. So the Blue Ribbon Panel as a project that I work on is a very nice fit from a policy perspective. The Blue Ribbon Study Panel cares a lot about domestic policy with respect to biodefense, including prevention, preparedness, response, and recovery. And of course, we really understand that all of this has to be done within the context of global health security, um, which is the, the stage on which EcoHealth Alliance does a lot of its work. So it's a really nice alignment. The study panel has a lot going on right now. We started in 2014, and we've grown quite a bit since that time. We have six very active panel makers, all former high-level policy makers, including our chairman, former Senator Joe Lieberman, and former Governor Tom Ridge. And the rest of our panelists include former Secretary of Health and Human Services Donna Shalala, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, former Congressman Jim Greenwood, and the Honorable Ken Weinstein, who was President Bush's Homeland Security Advisor in his last year in office. So they all bring this very interesting and diverse perspective to this question of biodefense and have a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas and initiatives that they're working on and we're working on with them this year and next. 
That's great. I, um, you know, when I first heard of the blue ribbon study panel, I actually had to Google what a blue ribbon panel is <laughs> because the the name is used a lot. But I, I thought it was interesting because a, a blue ribbon panel is typically a panel of experts, but who are outside of government or are outside of the official process. We're providing kind of objective recommendations going in. So it's great that this panel has such a such a bipartisan nature um, is outside of the process. So they're not encumbered by a lot of the politics that you would have if you're an active House member or an active senator or active uh, member of the administration and uh, just trying to provide really great recommendations to the process. That's exactly right. Dr. Bob Cadlick uh, was the original founder of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel and he understood back in 2013-2014 that there were significant gaps in our bio-preparedness and, and this idea to establish such a panel preceded the Ebola outbreak, which I think turned out to be a wake-up call for a lot of people, but not for Bob. Bob understood mm -hmm. that that was coming. He was already awake. He was already <laughs> awake, right. And and he, I think, he wanted to, to, to wake Congress up by, by getting Congress to recognize this problem and to establish a congressional commission, much like the 9-11 Commission or the WMD Commission. But of course, that, that takes an act of Congress. It takes mm -hmm. a law, it takes time, and it takes money to be appropriated. And so Bob decided to go it alone, and he brought me on and, and my co-director, Asha George. And so we, instead of calling it a commission, we called it a blue ribbon panel, and we went out and, and got private sources of funding, and we got the, the same superb high-level former policymakers mm -hmm. on board who, who may well have been tapped to be commissioners, um, but instead there there are blue ribbon members. No, that's that's uh, that's great. And you guys have issued uh, an initial report as well as a follow-up report. Um, and as we kind of talk about kind of the, the current work of the panel and the state of biodefense, uh, why don't we start with, you know, what does that term cover when we talk about biodefense? Are we talking about vaccines, about healthcare? Um, uh, what's along kind of the continuum of biodefense? It is very important to define because not everyone uses that term in the same way. Mm -hmm. For the purposes of the panel, we we talk about biodefense in the context of any impact of an infectious disease that can have catastrophic consequences. So that could be due to a bioterrorism event, that is to say something intentional, whether it's state-sponsored or by a lone actor. That could be due to a naturally occurring infectious disease event, like an emerging infectious disease that, that spills over into the human population. It could also be due to a laboratory accident, for example, a release of a pathogen from a laboratory that breaks biosecurity. So that's the, the scope of the type of event that we're looking at. There are many very important, um, what we would consider more everyday, public health concerns with respect to infectious diseases, we are focused on the subset of those that can have catastrophic consequences. And to your point, that encompasses many functions and activities of federal, state, local governments, of the private sector, all of whom need to play a role um, in, in this spectrum of activity from 
prevention to detection, mitigation, response, recovery. And the, the suite of activities contained within that spectrum is extremely broad, as you can imagine, from intelligence collection to development of medical countermeasures, distribute, distribution of medical countermeasures, um, to hospital preparedness activities and exercises. It's really, really an extremely broad area when you, when you get into the details. So for something this expansive, kind of across the government, who has oversight over biodefense as a whole? Is there kind of this single point of contact? Is it sort of split up? It seems like there might be a lot of cooks in the kitchen for something like this. Definitely. There is no single point of responsibility within the federal government for biodefense. It's actually difficult to know really where all of the biodefense activity is occurring within the federal government because we don't really have a unified approach to biodefense whether at the strategic level or the budgeting level. So, you know, obviously the buck always stops with the president. So we, sure. the, the White House certainly has a focus of responsibility on this issue and has uh, a team of various individuals, most of whom are staff with the National Security Council, okay. who look at medical preparedness, who look at global health security, who, who look at an intelligence. But, but the Blue Ribbon Panel has assessed that there's no single mm-hmm. high-level official within the federal government who has his or her eyes on all of these elements of biodefense that we've just discussed. And that's one of our primary recommendations because we think that's the only way to, to achieve mission optimization mm-hmm. um, and to ensure that this area receives the emphasis that, that it deserves. We, we, we view it as a major national security threat and we'd like to see it um, receive that attention within the federal government, that other national security threat receive. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I know at the the most recent uh, meeting that the panel held, uh, Ron Klain, the former Ebola czar, was there. And I remember him saying, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that uh, I I should be the last czar for a public (laughs) health response, uh, that there should be some sort of institutional capacity to sort of manage across the agencies and that. And I'm talking with some folks in uh, local health and talking, and it's interesting, too, on how that translates down into grants that have that are coming from different agencies and different components and because they're not well coordinated in the generation of those grants there's conflict or dual reporting through mm-hmm. the different grants or in some cases they're getting guidance that uh, changes depending on who you have on the phone be- because it seems like that that lack of sort of a, um, a central strategy or central uh, oversight translates down into, in some cases, a significant administrative burden on the local end who doesn't have the staff that maybe a secretary of HHS or Homeland Security or sort of a higher level office might have. I think that's right. We assess that those are the downstream impacts of the relative lack of coordination at mm-hmm. the federal level. And we don't deny that this this issue, this mission space is a bear. 
<clears throat> it's it's huge. It by necessity incorporates many departments and agencies, not to mention other levels of government and other non-federal stakeholders. Um, this is this is a tough nut to crack. We're we're trying to posit that it's not an impossible nut to crack, and there right. are some some actually relatively simple things that the federal government can do to coordinate its efforts so that at the state and local level, there's um, there are grants coming in, there's guidance coming in that that have been thought through beforehand with other departments and agencies. What is what is the Department of Homeland Security doing at the state level versus HHS doing at the state level? Can we make sure that those have been really well coordinated in advance to avoid duplication of effort and to avoid gaps in effort. And I think one of the best ways to do this is through the development of a national biodefense strategy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I usually equate a lot of the biodefense money and homeland security money that we got after 9-11 as almost like a, a developing country finding out that it has large oil reserves, right? That you, <laughs> you all of a sudden have this resource, but we have to very, very rapidly figure out how to manage it and how to coordinate mm -hmm. it and how to consolidate it. And health in general is so expansive across so many different domains that it makes sense that biodefense is also. But with that in mind, I think probably the current iteration of biodefense is relatively young. We're looking maybe maybe 15 years or so past 9-11 when a lot of the major funding and the major structures were put in place in the legislation in 2003, 2004, a little bit before. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest changes that we've seen to biodefense during this time in kind of the post 9-11 world? There's no question that 9-11 initiated a substantial ramp up in our focus on biodefense, the federal focus, the state and local focus. Uh, I should also mention the anthrax attacks subsequent, because I know we, <clears throat> I myself use 9-11 as shorthand, but I think the anthrax attacks probably elevated this even further, right? Absolutely. I, I, I think that you might have seen some of the activity, if, even if the anthrax attacks hadn't happened, but sure. there's absolutely no question that the anthrax attacks, which occurred about three weeks after 9-11, mm -hmm. um, were, were a significant wake-up call. And um, really, I think, I think took our policymakers and our public by surprise. You know, it, it had been really a long time since we had thought about um, bioterrorism in any meaningful way. I, I, I think that you, you there if you look into the history books, you can see um, President Clinton in the late 90s started to understand that this was a looming threat and started to put some of the federal structure in place to deal with it. Um, and then and then President George W. Bush uh, continued that, but it, it wasn't really until the event happened in September, October of that right. year that um, you really saw an enormous flurry of activity. I mean, immediately in Congress, dozens and dozens of bioterrorism, biodefense bills were being introduced by members of Congress. There were entirely new fields, uh, you know, disciplines being developed on the fly to handle it, such as microbial forensics. Where did that anthrax come from? Where did it originate? Um, who who dispersed it through the mail? We didn't really know how to answer those questions at the mm -hmm. time. So a lot of federal resources went into that. A lot of authorities were developed through legis legislation, you know, statutes such as the Bioterrorism Act, um, the Pandemic and All Hazards Prevention Act. Um, grants to 
state and locals to deal specifically with the threat of bioterrorism so that states and localities could use these monies to establish um, medical countermeasure distribution and dispensing capabilities. Um, really, a oh, and then of course the 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 special reserve fund, which was a 10-year pot of money established to entice pharmaceutical companies to develop medical countermeasures, treatments, vaccines, diagnostics. This is the Project BioShield, right? That's right, Project BioShield. I mean, none of this existed before September 11th and the anthrax attacks. So it was a pretty spectacular ramp up of capability. I think what we've what we've what we then saw, you know, starting six to ten years later was um, somewhat of a decrease in interest. I think mm -hmm. there there mercifully had not been another bioterrorism event since that time. But what the watchers on the outside have been aware of is that um, the, the threat for bioterrorism has not abated, even though there hasn't been a successful attack. And furthermore, the frequency of emerging infectious diseases is, has actually been increasing in that time, and we're seeing more and more of these spillover events. So that's, that's part of the advocacy that we do, is that we can prepare both for natural or intentional pandemics at the same time, and we, we don't want to lose the, the momentum that was gained after 2001. Uh, we want to get ahead of the next pandemic, not be reacting to it, and have to ramp up all over again from scratch. Yeah, and um, um, what was I going to say? I can edit that part you can out. Edit Don't that. worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, oh, oh! I know the. Uh, um, uh, it's an interesting point too that so much of the structure that we've been working in over this last decade and a half sort of came to fruition very, very quickly. Really, when our backs were up against the wall, we've just had the most serious attack against the country since Pearl Harbor, uh, really the first major bioterrorism attack in, in certainly in this generation uh, domestically. And, um, and so very rapidly, and I, dare I say even haphazardly, a lot of things were thrown together that have become the structures that we do everything with. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, the, the work of the panel, and uh, to kind of look at that and look at now that we know what we know a decade and a half after, what changes should we make? We've mm -hmm. created all these resources. Now how do we get more mileage out of them? How do we do more, and in many cases do more with less um, because resources have dwindled? Um, but how do we sustain it, and how do we make it more sustainable? Uh, so looking ahead at the legislative season, we've got uh, the fiscal year 17 budget was just recently passed, and for the most part, it's very steady state, I think that it's sustained the status quo for uh, biodefense for the remainder of the fiscal year. But we've got the FY18 budget, we've got coming up uh, the reauthorization of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act. So uh, among these things, what are, what are some of the things on the horizon that could really kind of impact the way we do biodefense? Well, one observation I'd like to make is that I, I do think Congress is a is an important partner here. I mean, um, there are a number of members who really do seem to understand the nature of this threat, and you see that reflected in the appropriations bills. The FY17 um, appropriation that you just described could have been much worse than it than it was. You know, right. some of the proposed cuts 
um, did did not make it into that final bill. On the other hand, some things we would have liked to see in that bill, such as um, an emergency you know response fund for public health, uh, were were not in there. So it's it always seems to be a trade off in the appropriations bills. On balance, I think the the appropriators and a number of of authorizers understand this threat and are on the side of of funding it as, as a the national security kind of a threat it is. So I think we have some great partners in Congress. These are the partners that are going to be very important in the fiscal year 18 appropriations process. Um, I think we, many in the community are you know, somewhat concerned about what may or may not be in the in the president's request in this area, and we'll be we'll be looking forward to seeing that bill and then and then figuring out how to how to plug any gaps with with our congressional champions. I think um, the the reauthorization of PAPA, the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, is a huge legislative opportunity, and anyone um, operating at the state and local level really needs to understand that, that that's the bill that comes up once every five years that authorizes key programs that these stakeholders care about, like hospital preparedness program, like the FEP grants. Um, and th so that's an opportunity not just for the Blue Ribbon Panel to weigh in, but for, for the state and local stakeholders to weigh in as well on what they care about. And there are other tangential bills that may be moving, such as um, the Farm Bill is something that we at the Blue mm. Ribbon Panel care about because of uh, its, its elements of agricultural defense. Um, and then potential uh, Department of Homeland Security authorization bills. We might not see a big one, but we'll see small pieces moving. So these are all things that we're keeping an eye on. I think there's a lot of opportunity in this Congress. Um, I, I would like to see Congress approach biodefense more um, in a more strategic and unified way to make sure that their oversight is, is not fragmented the way that the mission space is already fragmented in the executive branch. So I think there's um, an opportunity for, 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 for chairmen of key committees to get together and, and think about their oversight and to make sure that they're, they're hitting on everything that they need to. And, um, we, we hope that the, the National Biodefense Strategy, which is due out later this year, will provide a framework from which their oversight can operate. So um, just to make sure I understand this correctly, because I this is how I explain it to other people, and I need to make sure that I'm explaining <laughs> it right, is that the, so the authorization process in Congress is really where programs are created or set up or structured, right? And then the, the appropriations process is where they're actually funded every year. That's right. So authorization sets up the account, sets up the structures. Mm -hmm. It happens less frequently, but that really gives you the rules of engagement, right? That's a great way to explain it. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, I'm going to keep doing it then, but with greater confidence. So, um, so, and actually, you bring up an interesting thing with agricultural, and also uh, we haven't really touched on this yet. But um, you know, and when you were walking me around here, your office is at Eco Health Alliance. There's a lot of snakes and fish and other animals, and so animals within the continuum of health and biodefense and our agricultural resources. And I wonder if you can just talk a, a few minutes on sort of how that all fits in with biodefense? Sure. Well, as a veterinarian, I, and I, I am a small animal practitioner, um, 
I don't see a, a distinction between human and animal health. To me, it's it's all a continuum, mm-hmm. a continuum, and and really that includes the environment as well, the environment that we live in as humans and that our animals live in with us. So I think in the past you've seen some false uh, delineations, uh, silos, often based on departmental responsibilities as departments got bigger and bigger and um, you know they, they focus more in on exactly what they were supposed to do and perhaps sometimes forgetting that um, those, those policy or political silos aren't actually reflected in the natural world. And yeah. so at, at EcoHealth Alliance, the work that we do here is based on a fundamental understanding that animal health is human health and mm-hmm. human health is animal health and environmental health as well. So many of the, most of the diseases that that are jumping um, into human populations are, are jumping from animal populations. Uh, that can work the other way as well, by the way. Humans can give infectious diseases so we can pay it back. to animals as well. That, that's right. I, ideally, we would just like to stop these transmissions altogether sure. and not pay it back. But um, so, so we'd like to really understand better that, that interface and the dynamics there. And I think the Blue Ribbon Panel is very supportive of those kinds of efforts to understand the ecology of infectious diseases circulating in those populations. And most importantly, how to predict and prevent it from happening in the first place. That's great. And, and I should mention, too, to the listeners that the animals I mentioned are in cages or appropriately <laughs> contained. They're, it's not uh, free-range uh, reptiles. Um, or, or if there are, I haven't seen them. Um, Occasionally a cricket does escape. <laughs> oh, no. But, um, but um, so, no, thank you so much for, for talking through all of this with us and for talking through sort of the continuum of biodefense and just giving us a little bit of primer on all the different factors, but especially also on the legislative side, because that's, you know, it can be very disconnected um, uh, what happens in Congress to the day-to-day work that people do, but it can be so impactful in terms of the stage that it sets for the years that come in terms of what we do and how we do it. Um, So how can people uh, learn more about the work of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense, about EcoHealth Alliance? Where can can they find out more about your work? Sure. Well, come to our websites, ecohealthalliance.org and biodefensestudy.org, and you can learn about um, our scientists and our policy staff and um, the the kinds of reports that we publish, EcoHealth publishes an enormous amount of work in scientific journals. The Blue Ribbon Study Panel puts out independent reports and assessments. All of these are accessible on our website, and you can sign up for uh, for emails to be on our listserv so that you can um, come to our public meetings or, or watch our meetings online. We consider the public and um, the public health community in particular to be uh, very important stakeholders, and we, we want your feedback into our process. Great. And it's such great resources. It's all free. It's all online there. And I just encourage everybody listening to to check that out at some point. Uh, Ellen, thanks again for joining us and uh, for talking through this with us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jeff. All right. So joining me now is Carl Schmidt, the passionate founder and CEO of B. Parati, bparati.com, and B. Parati E-News. The man's on a mission to align disaster preparedness efforts of healthcare organizations, emergency management agencies, and public health departments through effective and sustainable healthcare coalitions. 
Prior to B. Parade, Carl served three years as the Chief of the Division of Disaster Planning and Readiness for the Illinois Department of Public Health, where there he served as the Director's Primary Liaison to the State Emergency Operations Center, and during that time, he led the state's ESF-8 operations for three gubernatorial disaster declarations, the 2011 National Level Exercise, and the 2012 NATO Summit in Chicago, and this is in addition to a long history in public safety and public health. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the opportunity. So when we first met, I think we had booths next to each other at the Public Health Preparedness Summit. And that's the thing that I was really just floored by is that for the longest time, you know, I'd met uh, with a bunch of folks and, and worked within my own organizations just trying to explain the budgeting process and sort of where the money comes from and how the money flows. And you had built out these just great flow charts to sort of simplify and help people understand where the money comes from and how it comes from the federal government and travels down to the local level. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, about the work you do with Viparati and those kinds of things and, um, and, and what you're out there doing. Well, you know, Viparati was born out of kind of a frustration uh, with the federal programs, and, and I, I say that cautiously. <laughs> when, yeah. when you work in state government, um, it doesn't move fast. It's, it's intended to be bureaucratic. Um, there's a lot of redundancy, and I always felt like we, when I came into Illinois after a long fire rescue paramedic career out of Tampa, I, f I found myself going, you know, man, can't we just move faster, please? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, can we stop paying for the same things over and over again? you got to be kidding me. This isn't somewhere. Be Prodi was looking, I was looking for it to be kind of the central depository more than a depository that did news and analysis and tried to simplify why emergency management matters to public health and why public health matters to health care and, and vice versa. And, um, you know, one of the challenges we have is FEMA has their own community and their own communication mechanisms, as does the CDC for public health. And then you get ASPR out of Washington that does their thing, but none of it comes together so people don't understand why they need each other and how they interrelate. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I know sort of in, in my tenure as well, I've sort of intersected a lot of these different funding streams. And one thing I've appreciated about the work that, that B. Parati has done is that you start to sort of simplify that and understand that, that, you know, as the funding comes down, there are grant requirements through FEMA, if you're on FEMA money, through ASPR, if you're on ASPR money, through CDC, if you're on CDC money. And so you start to find sort of these, um, I guess to use a high school term, these cliques, right, <laughs> these different groups that sort of yes. band together around the, the funding that comes through. Yeah, you know, coming from Illinois, we always joke, the feds follow the money in Illinois. And <laughs> when it comes to grants, <laughs> we follow the money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it's amazing how much the grants sort of help kind of dictate priorities and the work that gets done, right? Because if the um, uh, if you have specific deliverables in a grant, then, then kind of maybe regardless of what you're looking to do, uh, you have to meet those and you have to prioritize according to that. Did you find that to be the case? Did you find that you were doing things maybe that were focused more on the funding that came through versus what you saw as prioritized? Or, or how did you sort of uh, deal with that situation? Well, you know, working for the state of Illinois, we handled the public health emergency preparedness program and the hospital preparedness program. Mm -hmm. But, of course, Homeland Security grant program, emergency management performance grant programs, hazard mitigation programs all went through the Illinois Emergency Management Agency. So, you know, that was their focus, right? And in our office, our focus was the other two. 
Mm-hmm. But I think the greatest challenge for um, healthcare preparedness is that it goes through state public health departments. And they're right. public health departments. They're not healthcare departments. They they are a part of a vertical public health system. You know, that has the World Health Organization and it has a CDC, state health departments and local health departments. And and so it's it's very clean and you have a lot of public health professionals. But when we look at health care, government's kind of the, the Maybe the enemy is not the right term, but the adversary because they're the regulating body. The right. government, other than the VA system, doesn't deliver health care. So when health care preparedness grants get to the states and you have a bunch of public health people, excellent, passionate people, they don't know what to do with it. They don't understand how that system works. And right. so the disconnects have been uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, that's a good point because, like, with so many other, like, first response agencies, right, if we look at police or fire, they're they're typically municipal agencies, and then they fall under a state structure and a federal structure, but the actual active response is owned by the government. But in healthcare, um, that's not necessarily the case outside of the VA um, and a couple of other sort of municipal healthcare systems, the majority of it's in the private sector. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and sort of how you see, like you said, government is often in this regulating role rather than this operational role. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's um, 92% of the American healthcare system falls in uh, the private sector. Those are, those are the rough numbers that you see floating around by the different mm-hmm. analysis that are done. And you're right, it's a competitive marketplace. You know, government's not a competitive marketplace. So when you're trying to get the public health system to work with the healthcare system, you know, first off, public health is community oriented, population health oriented. Whereas healthcare is individual health oriented, a physician patient relationship, which you don't necessarily have in public health. But as we all know, when things go bad in public health, People get sick and they need health care. Yep. <laughs> we saw that with Ebola in Texas, how hard it was to connect those systems. So, you know, at this kind of intersection with public and private interests, um, do you ever see those sort of collide in terms of private health care systems sort of pushing back on government regulation or pushing back on things, or, or how does that kind of play out? Absolutely. I mean, you know, at the federal level, you, we have lobbyists for – you know, 30 or 40 different healthcare or mental health related organizations clearly pushing back, you know, on, on regulation. And mm-hmm. that's their job. That's their job. You know, these are for profit. And even if you want to call them nonprofit without a profit, they're not around. Right. So that fight against it is very different than public health and emergency management, where the American Public Health Association, the National Association of City and County Health Officials, and the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers will come together very closely with a unified voice, unified message, and go to the Hill. Mm-hmm. If we, yeah, if we look at emergency management, you you have the the you know was it the International Association of Emergency Managers and the National uh, you know what is it for the for the directors essentially the state association NEMA NEMA National yeah, emergency yeah. they will go to the Hill with a unified voice in general on homeland security and emergency management type functions. Uh-huh. But healthcare, no, you know, if, if if a bill comes out that's gonna hurt hospitals but help long term care centers, they're not going to be on the same page on the hill. And when you're starting to talk about how segmented healthcare is, 
you know, there's a lot of talk of funding community health centers to a much greater extent. And if they do that, well, then maybe there's less patients for private physicians to see, for hospitals to see. You know, that's a that's a good point, too, where sort of the incentives for public health are very different than the incentives for, um, you know, for a private sector company that sort of relies on certain reimbursement rates, certain things just to, to stay in business. So what do you see are some of the main drivers of healthcare preparedness over the last 10 years? I mean, we've seen the grant programs like the hospital preparedness program that's been reduced to about half of what it was 10 years ago. Uh, we're seeing new regulations come out that, that we should talk about in just a minute here, or are there other factors? Is it more market-driven, or is it some sort of combination of them? I, I go back to very little market-driven. Um, okay. You know, traditionally, the hospital preparedness program, up until, man, only the last few years, was hospital-focused. Mm-hmm. You know, 99% of it was the hospitals. How can we surge hospitals, right? Right. So, you know, you know and when you look at that, if, if it's a program that does not put heads in beds, it's not a billable program in a hospital, you don't get the attention of the CFO or the CEO. It's just mm-hmm. that thing that someone does, you know, down over on the third floor that gets some grant from the feds that we yeah. don't even put in our budget because we don't know if it's going to be there. Okay. You know, so that's so not market driven. Um, I think the first real move toward healthcare preparedness came out of 911 and the birth of the predecessor to the hospital preparedness program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's driven the, sh- the boat all the way through. Okay. But until recently, um, in 2012. Um, Dr. David Marcosi was running the National Healthcare Preparedness Program in Asper. Yep. And I like to say he turned the ship. You know, he got that ship turned in the federal level to move us toward healthcare coalitions, which is healthcare system focused, not hospital focused, right? Yeah. That brings a lot of new interest and not a lot of new players to the table, and which has caused some resistance on the hospital side. But But if we look at it, that turning of the ship is now, I'd say, gone full rudder. We're mm-hmm. clearly funding roughly 400 healthcare coalitions nationwide instead of 5,000 hospitals is where we're heading with this. I know you recently put out a piece about uh, Asper allowing these healthcare coalitions to be able to form as nonprofit entities. And so thinking of healthcare coalitions, right, as sort of trying to bring the different private sector and public sector partners under sort of a quasi-official body to do the planning around healthcare and to drive the planning around healthcare, it seems that this um, creating a nonprofit status does two things. One, it formalizes that entity in a way that makes it more than, you know, a line in a in a report <laughs> for a grant, but to make it yeah. a freestanding body. But it also seems to signal um, – the ability and possibly the future need to fundraise or to go after grants on behalf of a coalition. Am I reading that correctly? What's your take on that? You absolutely are. You know, now going back to even hospital coalitions in certain states, the nonprofit entity has been really there from the beginning. Indiana, for example, required 501c3 nonprofits for each of their hospital districts going back over a decade. Um, so that there's been some of that, and I don't know exactly how they funded, you know, the business side of that. But the difference we're seeing now is, you know, Asper can't tell the states, 
here's exactly how you have to build your coalitions, right? Because what works in Montana might not work in in New York. Right. But what they've done is they open the door to what they really know is the most effective model, and that is independent nonprofit entities that are not owned by any one of the stakeholders. They're mm-hmm. not owned by government, which is not necessarily a friend of healthcare or perceived to be, and that can lead to, if they're structured right, sustainability strategies. So this is an interesting point and an interesting shift we're kind of talking about here for sort of the next uh, evolution of healthcare preparedness. You know, we mentioned, um, you know, the, the emergence of the coalitions. Um, there does seem to be this decline in healthcare preparedness funding. I think you brought up a good point before about how um, healthcare preparedness was driven so much by the hospital preparedness program and probably, you know, a lot of work has been done, but it never quite hit that nerve center of the hospital, right? The CFO's office, the senior leadership who's, who's too wrapped up in the day-to-day business of the hospital. Um, right. I want to talk about one other issue and that's the CMS rule, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So for folks listening, the CMS rule basically institutionalized a baseline level of emergency preparedness. If you get money through CMS, you have to meet this baseline level of preparedness. And this past, um, it's actually not being talked about a lot right now because uh, it's within the window of the Congressional Review Act. What that means is that certain regulations that were passed towards the end of the Obama administration can be brought up and overturned within 60 working days of the new Congress. And so uh, that's where you're seeing a lot of these environmental regulations and things being turned over. Although the buzz that I've heard so far is that this is not likely to be turned over, that the hospitals sort of have bigger fish to fry. There, and um, um, yeah. it, it's kind of work that they're already doing under joint commission, accreditation, and other kinds of programs. But uh, so what's your take on this? Do you think it's going to survive? And actually, by the time this podcast airs, I think we'll be pretty close to outside of the window where it could be overturned. And what does it mean for the future of healthcare preparedness? Is this a good thing? Oh, yeah. To me, it's a game changer. You know, that rule, you know, hit the books or got proposed in 2007 in the wake of Katrina, same time Asper was born. And so... Talk about government moving slow. Yes, yeah. And I like to say it, it kind of got lost, right? But in the meantime, Joint Commission amped up an emergency management chapter, and, you know, they they credit probably 70% of the hospitals in America, roughly, if you look at their website. So, you know, they had started their own chapter, and, and, and that pushed things forward. And I think that rule really fell off the radar. But Hurricane Sandy was the game changer. It, it was, yeah. the, you know, people don't realize no, we didn't kill 215 people in hospital or in healthcare beds like we did in New Orleans, and that's mm-hmm. a rough number. But the problems in Hurricane Sandy were much more broad because you had a multi-state region. You had a lot of evacuations happening in the middle of the storm. Like, you know, Langon Medical Center is the one we know about. It's very, it was very prominent. But what happened to long-term care center patients and other residential facilities, right, or or inpatient facilities. Those people, when they evacuated, they pushed them out the door on an ambulance. Medical, medical records didn't go with them. Family said, where's my mom? And well, man, we don't know where the ambulance took them. So to me, if you look at 2013, is when the rule really came back into prominence that it was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, Hurricane Sandy shook up the federal bureaucracy, shall we say, 
and got it off the shelf. You know, Jeff, you know who's really got the problems with this rule, and I'm not saying that they are against the rule. They understand it's needed, but the long-term care community, there are roughly 15,000 long-term care centers in America and 5,000 hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. Now, long-term care centers didn't have really anything to be concerned about unless there was some minor state regulation. Right. So they're having to move from nothing to hospital, essentially, standards, you know, within a year. And yeah. and that goes back to health care coalitions. Right. The, the costing of the CMS rule clearly, and the CMS rule was written in concert with the new health care preparedness capabilities out of ASPR and the new cooperative agreement. And as much as I'll disagree with federal policy and I'll write some hard things, I do believe that they have done a great job of those three things coming together. Uh-huh. Because if healthcare coalitions fail or, or die, meeting the intent of that rule is almost impossible for each individual facility to do on their own. You know, I've been a fan of the rule. I understand that it's difficulty, and typically, with you know, you can't necessarily regulate your way to preparedness, but you also can't grant your way to preparedness solely. Right. And this, um, you know, by creating a baseline, it's created a floor. And even if a lot of the facilities are already operating above it, I, you know, on a personal level believe that, you know, the cost of doing business, if you're going to be part of the healthcare infrastructure, is to be able to, you know, have some baseline level of emergency preparedness is to be able to keep functioning because, you know, you really can't afford to have have healthcare facilities fail in the face of a disaster, but it's going to create some challenges. And, and I agree with you um, that the the long-term care facilities and the facilities that aren't accustomed to regulations and and uh, like this and are usually just playing catch up with the most recent violation. They don't have the infrastructure departments of people who can oversee this. Are going to have greater challenges in meeting this than the ones who already have. Um, as, as we look at like the next 10 years in healthcare preparedness, I mean, we've seen monumental shifts over the last 10 years. Um, do you expect to see it as chaotic or do you expect to see that we're sort of settling into this combination of maybe some grants, but more through the regulatory and the coalition approach? Um, what, what do you see coming? And then we'll come back in 10 years and uh, grade you. <laughs> yeah. I, I truly believe for it to be successful, it has to have ownership with the healthcare system, right? So now, obviously, the healthcare system is more motivated because there is regulation that can affect their funding, their reimbursement, what have you, um, and it can affect their state licensure because state licensure in every state is built on the CMS standard, or CMS is the baseline, right? So, but but for the future, if if healthcare doesn't take ownership, and if that mid-level management and the CEO don't start to understand why we need this, mm-hmm. how this is saving us money by supporting it, and not just supporting it by participating, supporting it with economics. And it right. doesn't have to be a due structure. But but healthcare coalitions are the place, if they're structured right, and it's why I've been really hard on some states lately that are trying to push bad models, because if you aren't building a model with independence downstream with your healthcare coalition, mm-hmm. and they are not built in a way that they can accept dollars, whether it be donations, whether it be fee-for-service, um, whether it just be shared cost, shared effort, and shared resources, you're burying rocks. You're not burying seeds, right, with your seed money. Yes. And um, 
So I, I truly feel, and I just came out of a, a North Carolina spending some time with the Duke Healthcare Preparedness Coalition. Mm-hmm. A guy named Ken Shaw is the, you know, the leads that coalition. And it was really neat to see his independent board. He essentially told the board that it had home health on it, public health was there, emergency management was there, he had community health centers, and he told them, instead of, he used to make the decisions, right? The Duke got the money and he kind of did his thing with his team, right? Or his predecessors did. He said, you are the decision makers. Mm-hmm. I work for you, right? Here's the bylaws, here's the governance structure. And, and what, what I talked to them about was, listen, home health, you, you just asked about this concern of a community-based exercise mm-hmm. and a regional risk assessment. I said, well, what does it cost you to hire a consultant to help you with that? Right. What, what if every long-term care center hires a consultant and every community health center hires a consultant? One, we're not connecting. We're not cross-pollinating. We're not coming here and doing what we need to do. But two, if you guys all come up with a budget, the board says, hey, we can bring in a very good consultant to do our regional exercise that everyone has to do. Public health departments, let's get your deliverables tied in. Emergency management, what are your EMPG deliverables? Let's tie those in. And each one of us is going to put $200 in the pot from our organization into our 501c3 charity to help fund this, and we'll fund the other 50% with our grant. That's what has to happen. When people pay into something, they they own it. They feel a Mm -hmm. part of it. And when they're allowed to have the independence to make the decisions, your board can't vote on a decision and then have the state go, oh, no, 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 that's we don't like that. We're not going to fund that. Or, you know, they try to purchase something, and the local health department is their fiscal agent. Great people. But that fiscal agent is a governmental entity who goes, well, that's against our policy. Or right. that's got to go out to procurement, right? But there's only eight days left in the grant. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Yeah, the, the healthcare coalition is about shared costs, shared efforts, shared resources, and if they are structured right, those that have to meet the CMS emergency preparedness rule will have that community to come together and do that, reduce the administrative burden, reduce their costs, reduce their time, and connect like the healthcare system has to connect to do the job. Well, thanks so much for for joining us and talking us through all of this. I mean, obviously, there's been so much going on over the last 10 years and so much more happening. I mean, I'm sure that that the issue of healthcare preparedness is going to continue to come up. And, uh, you know, we hope to to be able to kind of keep the conversation going with you and and have you back. And um, there's also uh, a fairly good chance that I screw up the recording and have to re-record this anyway, in which case we'll have you back even sooner. (laughs) Assuming... How can folks find out more about B. Parati and get access to some of the tools and some of the knowledge that you're putting out there? You, you know, everything we do is on B. Parati, B-P-A-R-A-T-I.com. And Parati is Latin for ready. So it's be ready. It's a play on words. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, and bparati.com is 100% free. There's no registration required. And everything, when I go to work with a client, like I work with Duke, what I learn there We'll get information that will end up on our website. When I'm out in Kansas and I see what's working there and what's not, it will end up on the website. So the goal is that the website becomes a hub, right, whether you're emergency management, whether you're EMS, whether you're public health or health care, that you can send us stuff and we'll get it on. Hopefully what we're doing on bproddy.com 
resonates more operationally, right? We, we yeah. want to speak to the people on the ground, let them understand what the federal policy is, what states are doing crazy stuff, and what ones are doing good stuff. <laughs> Make yeah. sense? Absolutely. And, and what first attracted me to the work you guys are doing, too, is, like you said, that operational perspective and following the money. And um, I, it's, it's just great stuff out there. We, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, and all the work that you're doing out there. Man, well, well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I, I love to uh, share the gospel, shall I say, of Healthcare Coalition. All right, two episodes down. Thanks to Dr. Ellen Carlin and Carl Schmidt for educating us all a bit more on biodefense and healthcare preparedness. If you like what you're hearing, give us a give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. If you want to talk more about it or if you're interested in being a guest on the show, send us an email at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can follow us at disasterpolitic. In the meantime, we appreciate you listening and stay safe out there.